0: coming to you from Podcast Detroit. It's Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes. And for future episode information and additional content, head over to herdpodcast.com and follow us on Instagram at Herd Podcast. Welcome uh, to Episode 2. We are here uh, in Royal Oak, Michigan, once again, with uh, Jason. Hello. And Dave. Hello. And we have a very special guest with us today, uh, Mr. Camper English of academics.com and the author of Tonic Water, a.k.a. g and WTF. Got that? Hello. <laughs> <That's> perfect. <laughs> um. So today, uh, Camper, uh, you are visiting Detroit from San Francisco? Yes. All right.
1: Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a cocktails and spirits journalist, and I've been just thinking about drinks all the time for more than a decade. I sort of saw the cocktail renaissance that was about to happen starting to come together, and I got really interested in... Not just you know what's a fun bar or being in a, a party nightclub, but the spirits that make uh, the cocktails and how they come together, and you know the craft of bartending and, in particular, their production and how things come together and how spirits are made in the first place. So, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe uh,
0: I read that you were you your physics and computer science correct. Yep. Yep, that was my uh, college days in grad school. So, do. You- one thing after reading the book, um, scientific method, like how does that kind of play into what you're doing with spirits and stuff like that?
1: It's it, a lot of what I do actually is uh fact checking in, in a way, uh, using science. I did a lot of work on ice a few years ago, and that came out of going to a seminar where uh, I sat through it and being like, this doesn't make scientific sense, and so I sought to disprove what I had learned very methodically and then find a a better way to achieve the results.
2: That's really the, that's really the, the, um, the credibility of academics is that he's, he's contributed a ton to, um, the cocktail world in terms of a lot of these different things because he's taking a scientific approach to some of these issues, like looking at the ice and looking at all, all kinds of different things. Um, there are very few people that are kind of looking at that in that analytical way and scientific way. And uh, it's it's really, you know, like we all love Dave Arnold's book, right? And It's really great to um, have another resource for that kind of information.
3: So what was kind of that first kernel of in- inspiration, that bug that hit you? I mean, I know you talked about you, ha- you developed this passion for it, but was it sitting at the bar? Was there a particular place? Was it a particular drink? a particular situation where that light bulb went off? Well,
1: there were a couple things. Uh, I was covering nightlife generally doing quick reviews about places around town and considered myself a nightlife writer for for a little bit. And then, well, I was invited on a press trip and and I was like, oh, I, I like getting flown places to drink. And that was a factor that helped push me towards being more into the spirits themselves. But just the more time spent in front of bartenders asking questions at 501 when the bar first opens led, you know, questions lead to more questions, at least the way my brain works. And uh, then I needed to find out the answers. And, you know, here we are 10 years later, still asking questions.
2: Pretty terrific. I mean, I, he's contributed a ton. You've contributed a ton to the the uh, cocktail community and uh, you've been published in like everything. I mean, you you've been in a ton of different. Yeah, and
1: it keeps changing. It used to be more food magazines like Savoir and and sort of trend magazines like Details and more recently places, uh, Popular Science and a new website called Cook Science, which is done by the America's Test Kitchen people. Oh, cool. So I've got to look into that. So I'll do a lot of research and then they'll go test everything in the kitchen. So I'll survey what bartenders are doing and then in this case, they're the ones getting sticky doing the testing. Oh, that's cool.
0: Oh, that's really cool. I'll have to check that out. That's fantastic. So, so when you say research, uh, obviously part of that's drinking. What else goes into research and what what you're finding uh, that's happening in the craft, in the cocktail world?
1: Well, a lot of what I do is ask bartenders how they're using something. Uh, right now, I'm working on a story with adding like citric acid and malic acid to cocktails and why do you do that and then how do you do that and what is the ratio of these acids and um in the beginning part of that investigation but it would be similar to other things i've done um uh, i did a story on clarified milk punches and i uh, would read a lot of different recipes but i wanted you know what is the what's the best way to do it what's the methodology there's um bartenders tend to work fairly isolated and come up with a way that works for them or their bar and then I would try to look at sort of the bigger picture. What is what is everybody doing? What are the common factors? Um, what do we expect to work best or, or, or not so well? Yeah,
2: and you you seem to have, uh, obviously, you're very well respected and you've got a great network. So you you are able to get some of these guys to open up to you. Whereas if, if Yanni called Charles Jolie and was like, How do you do this? He'd be like, "Go fuck yourself," and you're able to, I think, kind of like, you know, act as that intermediary, like impartial um, information gatherer to like make a better product for all of us.
1: Yeah, I think. I mean, it's it's helpful. I've, you know, I'm a friend of the bartending community for sure. Like, I'm I'm really interested, and I'm interested in and and promoting it and promoting the the thought behind it because it's not just looking pretty, making drinks while opening beers. There's so much more to it, and uh, we all learn as we go along and uh, I think a lot of people know that and it gets me a little bit more access, which then I can turn and give back to everybody else afterwards.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, that's what, that's what it is. Everybody's like, okay, we're, you're like, you're like, um, Sweden, right. Of the, <laughs> of, the of the, of the bar world. Like you're like the neutral party, right. And it's like, everybody's happy to help you because you help everybody else. And I actually really like that analogy with the America's test kitchen. That's exactly what you do. I love I love Cooks Illustrated as a publication and that's pretty much exactly what you do. You follow that exact same model but for drinking. Yep. Which is great.
1: Yeah, now it's great that there's a you know website. It's mostly food, but uh they're into cocktails as well now. And so to be able to have a place that I can do I don't have to do all the research and then uh do all the testing alone. That's that's a lot of work for sure. a person to the division of labor there is is fantastic, yeah. and I hope I get to continue doing a lot of stuff with them because it's such a, a great uh, venue.
2: Yeah, that's great. And it's also really hard to do research when you're drinking. Like your your integrity of, of work just diminish. I'm just like, ah, fuck it. that's That seems right. And, yep. like a couple of drinks in, you're just like, no. And the <laughs> same
0: thing when I'm trying to take
3: pictures. Yeah. The quality of the pictures goes way down yeah. as I continue to drink. See, Until I just give up altogether, right?
0: I I find myself becoming more artistic really? as I drink and with my with photos and with writing. I don't know writing. Oh. I would agree. <laughs>
2: yeah, when I was blogging as Captain McBoozy, that was my model. Is that I'd get a couple drinks in and then just write whatever yeah. came yeah. to me and like just. Just be like just stupid. But see,
3: so you works. could always wake up in the morning and like, you know, refine a little bit. But when you wake up in the morning, you're going through your camera roll and you're like, these just, yeah. Yeah,
0: there's <laughs> no fixings. So yeah, you though. can always,
2: yeah, you can always spell check like, the next man, day. it looks,
3: I was like so steady. I thought it was so steady.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Camper, you, you have the, the gin and tonic book. You, ha- you just mentioned clarified milk punches. Are there particular cocktails that you uh, research? Like, h- how, do you, how do you figure out what you're going to research next?
1: Usually it's uh, just an area of interest or an area where it seems like I'm seeing people doing uh, different approaches to try to fix one common problem or a common drink or, um, you know, something as simple as like a Negroni alternative without Campari. Well, then what do you do? What do you use? Why do you use that And, and pull it together? So I'm always looking for questions to answer, I guess. It's just the way my brain <laughs> works is a uh, want to find solutions to things so
0: in and to follow that uh, the Negroni example uh, how many places do you call do you visit like do you, is there a certain number uh, that you go after um, I, I
1: usually start with a well I'll have gone to a lot of places and and noticed uh, something and I and I get to travel a lot on press trips to distilleries and to international cocktail conventions and things like that to give talks, and um, and just attend them. And I learn a lot from the other regional bartenders. So I'll tend to see something at a few bars and then pursue it more on online on Facebook, ask everybody what they're doing, if they would uh, give a comment or, um, or help me out with the research.
2: Yeah, you put up a Facebook post and you got like a ton of, just about that citric acid, you got a ton of responses like right away.
1: Yep. And then some people are just emailing me directly. They don't want to share their answer publicly yet. And uh, uh, and some of those I'll pursue in more detail and follow up questions. And um, yeah, that's this one's going to get super nerdy again. I'm excited about it.
2: Yeah, those are the best ones, though. I mean, those are like the the really valuable ones where somebody's really because we are all just kind of shooting from the hip. None of us have any science background. You know, we're just sort of looking at this stuff and thinking, oh, this seems to work or it's worked in the past or whatever but it'll be nice to actually look back and see like oh why, this is why that actually you know worked for this project
0: do do you find that um academics and uh your your writing is geared more towards uh industry people or do novices connect with you as well in terms of uh you know the the things you're talking about and the the analysis that you're doing
1: yeah it tends to be uh the industry people, bartenders, and uh, then the the home cocktail nerds, which are uh, some of my favorite uh, part of the audience, because the the amount of posts that I get on just the ice stuff that that I did alone is in uh, comments is just ridiculous. And people take the stuff that I feel like that was a completed research pro uh, process, and continue to work on it, work on it, and send me their results. So they're doing a similar thing, but just to you know, make better ice in their home freezer. I know the bourbon nerds are really
3: uh, onto that. I know in some of the Facebook groups that I've looked at, you know, um, you've been referenced frequently people that have really no interest in cocktails but are interested in, uh, you know, having that really nice ice for their whiskey. And so I thought that was interesting as sort of just another spin on it.
0: So we're going to head to break uh, and then we'll be back and we're going to talk to you about some stuff that we're drinking. And we'll be back with Camper English as well. And we're back. Uh, we're gonna talk about a couple things that we're drinking right now. Um, first, we have a Rebel Yell single barrel uh, bourbon. Um, Jason, you were just telling me uh, a little bit about this. Tell me. To, let's. Uh, let's repeat for the listeners.
3: Sure. So, uh, Rebel Yell, it's a 10 year single barrel, uh, weeded bourbon. Um, it's, uh, it's distributed by a company out of St. Louis Luxco. Um, the, the actual bourbon itself, uh, is sourced from Heaven Hill, which is a large, uh, bourbon distillery operation in Bardstown, Kentucky. Um, they, the families, uh, of the two companies go way back. They have a great relationship. um, one of the things we were kind of talking about off-air is this idea of uh, non distillery producers. Uh, you see it in a lot of the uh, craft markets. Uh, companies, brands are, uh, you know, putting, putting their own spirit in the barrel. It's going to be two, three years before they can get it out. So they're uh, purchasing uh, whiskey from different places. Usually uh, there's a, a bourbon factory, a farm factory, rather in Indiana called uh, Midwest Grain Products, MGP. It's where most of the uh, source whiskey comes from. In this instance, they're getting it from Heaven Hill. Um, this is a cool product to play around with because weeded bourbon uh, right now is hot because so, of the Pappy so Van Winkle right brand. Now. Exactly, it's so weeded. hot. There's not very many uh, weeded bourbons outside of the Pappy Van Winkle. They've got like Maker's Mark. He- uh, Heaven Hill, strangely enough, has their own Larceny and Old Fitzgerald brand. I don't believe Old Fitzgerald. Is available in Michigan but uh, there's really not um very many other ones so Pappy van Winkle not only do they have the the super hot name right now um they also uh, in older an older weed of bourbons kind of have a, a monopoly on those so to be able to get to try another uh you know 10-year weed of bourbon um is, is going to be pretty cool give it a whirl so should we, should we
1: talk about what a weed bourbon is yeah that's sure. gonna
0: actually be my uh, my next question cool. <laughs>
1: right so
2: so to be bourbon the mash bill has got to be At least 51% corn. And then, uh, the rest of it is usually made up of, um, malted barley or rye or more malted barley, a little bit of malted barley and rye or wheat. And so, um, some producers, consumers found that the wheated, uh, bourbons were a little smoother and not quite as spicy or as harsh as some of the, uh, whiskeys that had rye in them. And so that was, that was the marketing, that was the marketing thing about a hundred years ago. Think about take. wheat bread versus rye bread, right? you know not quite as, not quite as intense, a little smoother, a little sweeter, maybe approachable yeah
1: it, um, uh, the malted barley it took me a while to figure out, and it shouldn't be that hard uh, why there's always malted barley the enzymes. In, in it, and it's because of the enzymatic reaction mm-hmm. uh, that the malting process has has gone through in the barley, but how that helps. Uh, fermentation. It helps break down long chain sugars into simpler sugars so that they can be digested by the yeast. And uh, so traditionally, you always had to have some uh, malted barley in your whiskey recipe, no matter the the rest of the recipe. Nowadays, and perhaps some of the reason why we think that older uh, bourbons taste different, nowadays everyone uses enzymes to speed up that um, breaking of the long chain sugar reactions. Uh, I I don't know for sure, but we do know that they've changed the technology. Used. Totally.
2: And now that's why you see a hundred percent rye whiskeys, right? Like two James right down the street from us makes a hundred percent rye whiskey because they can use enzymes. They can pitch enzymes. They don't need to actually use yeast. And so, um, that has changed the, or, or the, the enzymes that come from, uh, sorry, the malted, malted barley, rye. um, that's that's definitely going to change the flavor i mean it's going to take out you know even like the malted barley is typically a couple you know a couple percentage points of the overall mash bill maybe five percent um it's generally pretty low as opposed to like irish whiskey which is pretty much all malted barley um so you know think about those flavors between the two um so yeah i mean it's definitely going to change the flavor you know but this is a great product i mean 10 year old this is yeah a 10 year old weeded at 100 proof yeah it's pretty nice and it's like. 50 bucks. It's 50 bucks. So, I mean, you reasonable. know,
3: the the competitor product would be like the Old Weller Antique 107, which is around 30 bucks. If you can find it in stores, it's getting increasingly harder to find. And that's the eight-year wheated bourbon made by Buffalo Trace. Same exact um, original recipe as the Pappy Van Winkles, or man's Pappy, as some people like to say. But um, in terms of the age and the price, there really is no other product that you can even try right. as an alternative. Right. Yeah, no it's really nice. I mean you can't find Weller 12 anywhere on no. the shelves so mm-hmm. and aftermarket's 100 bucks now. Yeah. Crazy. So we were really happy they did um this year they did a this is their first they did a 2000 case run of it which is not large. Um they're planning on doing a 4000 case release in 2017 so um it'll be interesting to see what they do with this brand. If they're continuing to age them. They're going to be offering Older expressions, or if these are kind of one-offs, considering it's not theirs, um, they're buying this whiskey from Heaven Hill, so we'll enjoy it while we have it.
2: Yeah, we use their uh, we use their rye basically as our well rye in all of our places, which it's eighty proof and it's like three year rye, but it's actually really delicious. It's got like a great flavor to it. So,
3: what do you think relative to the Kentucky Spirit last week?
0: Uh, th- this one, I I, I mean. Going back trying to remember the, what the last one tastes like but this is uh this is very smooth yeah um sweet yeah uh I mean these are really simple uh descriptors I'm, I I know but um you know in terms of it, it, it was really easy to drink um which I think probably I said about the one last week too they they're they're not that they weren't that much different to in my you know my kind of nov, novice bourbon palate um both are very good and I think, uh, I mean, you know, we could drink a lot of this. <laughs>
2: yeah. It goes down easy. I mean, it, it is, it's smooth and it's sweet. You know, it's, uh, it's like me. Uh, it goes down easy. <laughs> <clears throat> um, bump, bump. And, and you know what? I just want to, I want to, um, just, I think it's interesting. You're talking about sort of how they're fully disclosing exactly what it is. Yeah. that's in the bottle. Um, and there are some other producers, like we talked about Templeton and what happened with them and, there are some companies that, that basically don't say, and some local companies as well, that are sourcing, and they're not exactly being transparent about the fact that they're sourcing. Um, but that's not a new thing, right? That's been going on. I mean, no. Julian Van Winkle Sr. was doing that. Pappy himself was basically William LaRue doing Weller. that. That's Weller we doing do
3: the that. class. We do the uh, Pappy vs. Weller class at Sugarhouse. And we talk about, even as far back as 1849, William LaRue Weller, the original W.L. Weller, um was a whiskey wholesaler, so that's essentially what he was doing: buying the bourbon from the uh, A.P.H. Uh, or I believe it's Arthur Phillips Stitzel uh, Distillery, which he ended up later on uh, purchased partnering with Julian Van Winkle. Uh, originally senior, ended up buying that, which created that Stitzel Weller um, partnership or um, business. But, yeah, um, so these guys
2: were buying juice, yeah, and putting it in a package and a label that they thought was more. Appealing and just giving it a different name, you know, which is so. It's it's not it's not like it's a new thing.
3: And more interesting, I think, the, right now, what you see the the spectrum of uh, outcomes. You know, Templeton Rye has been penalized quite harshly for their um, their marketing gimmicks, um, and then you see companies like Smooth Ambler and High West who have both seen significant investments from larger, um, you know, uh, constellation brands. I believe just outright purchase. High West, Smooth Ambler has seen a um a large uh uh investment from Pernod, um j- both of those in the last couple months. So yeah. they're they're seeing they're reaping the benefits of that transparency. The brands their brands are very strong. People are really identifying with that um, you know, genuine honesty and transparency in what they're doing.
0: So we're gonna follow this uh this bourbon with the gin. All right. Naturally. So we have a <laughs> bottle of uh, Tankeray Malacca gin, um, camper, tell us a little bit about this
1: Well, could you Tankeray Malacca was a short lived product made by Tankeray and uh, was Class on the mar- of
3: Gary Tangaroo.
1: It <laughs> <laughs> was on the market for a few years and then off and it became a cult uh bottle within the booze industry, and so they made another an additional batch, basically just for. Uh, The friends in the industry as sort of a a benevolent gift (laughs) to the world.
2: So this is a little bit sweeter. This is an original recipe from Charles Tangray, one of his original recipes and they recreated it. And this is, this is a little sweeter. So the cocktail nerds um, were all, all these old recipes called for old Tom gin. And so the cocktail nerds were all looking for old Tom gin, but nobody made old Tom gin. It, It had sort of fallen out of favor for London dry gin. And so, Basically, the only thing on the market that you could get if you wanted to make, uh, you know, an authentic old-time gin-style cocktail would have been uh, the malacca gin. And it, it just, the demand for it among like 17 people on earth was just <laughs> insane. And it was like, but, you know, back, I mean, 10 years ago when I was just like, you know, reading eGullet and things like that, it was like people were selling this stuff for crazy amount of money. And, you know, now we, I do the same thing with bourbon, but this was gin again 10 years ago. I mean, it's pretty wild
0: now um so we mentioned old old Tom yep London dry and then the first, if I remember from the book Gen- Jennifer, Genever Genever Geneva. Geneva okay uh, Genever so um, <laughs> um so Genever old Tom London dry those are kind of the the kind of chronological um scope there um this will probably lead us into the break but um can we start camper talking about the kind of differences? And uh, le- sure. we'll lead in a brief history and, of gin. Gin,
1: yep. The, the one minute history of gin. <laughs> <laughs> sure. No, how
2: about how about after the break? After the break, you want to break now? Yeah, we going to break, let's now. break now. Is yeah. that all right? We'll break now and come back and talk about gin.
0: All Perfect. Right. Welcome back. Uh, before the break, we started talking, uh, leading into a talk of the history of gin. Um, so gin has gone through th- three phases, essentially,
1: camper. Sure, unless we want to include the modern era of gin as a fourth, I think that was a so renaissance. That's, i think it's
0: i think it's reasonable that's reasonable to say <laughs> so so let let's start from the beginning
1: uh genever geneva uh so which is the Dutch word for juniper okay. juniper had been used in wine, beer, and spirits for millennia and uh, uh started being distilled in with what sort of original old formula uh geneva was more like Closer to white whiskey with juniper in it, um, and depending on the style of Geneva, and there are different legal categories of it. Um, it would be more malty and whiskey-like than um, than than other styles. And as that was exported to um, London, and particularly in the late 1600s, early 1700s, the uh, there was an tariffs on imports for uh, spirits from, uh, from other countries and uh, from for like the the cognac and all those brandies sort of were no longer available, and the British started making their own version, and that's where we got into uh, old Tom gin because the the British weren't very good distillers, so they made pretty uh low quality, uh Geneva. Sort of a substitute version of it, but then they sort of had to hide their gross flavor of it with sugar, with sugar, uh, with sometimes turpentine. Nice, <laughs> uh, well, that that stuff is good. <laughs> wow, and uh, often just juniper oil rather than having it uh, re-distilled with juniper, as pretty much any quality gin does today.
2: Right, so they, they were just distilling a spirit and then additives.
1: Yep, right on. And then that uh, evolved into the London Dry style, which was really came. More from column distillation than anything else, the technology to make better quality product consistently and faster allowed a neutral base spirit, which could then be redistilled with juniper and other botanicals to take the modern uh, form of gin that we know and love today.
2: The London Drys, your your Bee Feeders, your
0: Tangerays, your Bombay's of the world. So so let's go back a little bit further. What exactly is gin? Gin is...
1: A short word for juniper. Um, no, no I know,
0: but so it's it's any it's a spirit distilled with juniper, yes?
1: Yeah, it's legal definition uh means it includes that it has to have the primary flavoring from juniper, although we could argue that some modern gins don't quite meet that uh definition exactly. But typically it's a neutral spirit like vodka, redistilled with botanicals. Uh, juniper and others like uh, citrus peels, um, licorice, fennel. Yeah, sure. Yeah.
2: And so there's no there's no legal requirement for what the the base spirit has to be. It's just neutral grain. So it can be wheat. It could be potato. It could be it could be basically anything.
3: Yes. Okay. Saint George makes a rye based gin. Sure. which is yeah pretty delicious. Saint George, yeah. In, ter- in terms of the new
2: American, like the new craft method gins, which Again, I mean, you know, talking about the whiskeys, you know, a new distillery starts up, it's really expensive, and then they they distill, and the only thing that they can basically take to market in a series of weeks is either vodka or gin. So while they're all trying to get rich off of their bourbons and ryes, which are aging in their warehouses for years— they're cranking out all of these new American-style gins, and some of them are better than others. Some of them are really pushing the envelope. I like. I think that yeah, those guys are doing. Saint George is doing an awesome job with most of their spirits, but um, their gins in particular, I thought, are just phenomenal. So,
0: so what does it mean to push the envelope with gin? What do you? What do you I think it's just creating. So their
2: their Terroir Gin, for example, has got uh just dirt. They just add dirt to it. I don't know, but it's got a level of it's got a level of um. Uh, a flavor that I've not seen before in a gin. You taste it and you're still like, yes, I understand that the gin, but it just brings something different to the conversation. It's, is it like a direct swap for, um, you know, your beefeater or your, your quote unquote well gin? Absolutely not. One, in terms of, um, price point and two, in terms of flavor profile, it's not going to work as well, but it's a really exciting product. To be able to play with something that's you've never had a you know a flavor combination like that before you know it's it's, it's kind of brand new.
3: Maybe with like uh you know whiskey uh bourbon it, you can only have the you know the water, uh the yeast the barrel and the grain right. So like no coloring, no additional flavors. You're very it's got a very set you know legal definition. Whereas like Camper mentioned, once you get with gin. Neutral grain, spirit base, whatever it's juniper—it's kind of you know—you've got an open canvas to work with. So really, whatever these uh, companies want to play with, you know, like using the rye gin for example, um, can can lead to some pretty cool, pretty cool things.
2: Are there is there any uh, new uh, new newer gins that stick out to you, Camper, that you're really a big fan of? That maybe uh, pay you for your services.
1: <laughs> just kidding, that would never happen. That would never happen. Uh, I'll work with anybody with enough budget. Uh, yeah, I've I've tried. Gosh, a, a lot of really uh, exciting gins. Uh, one that I was just thinking of momentarily when we talk about pushing the envelope. It's a brand called Bar Hill uh, mm. from New Hampshire, I believe. And the only uh, they add juniper to neutral spirit and then wildflower honey. So all the mm. botanicals come from what the bees have been snacking on that season wow. so each season it's a new botanical mix based on the honey alone with juniper added wow cool really just turning the definition of gin which we think of as always very dry in the first place yeah and and very purposefully uh, dialed in with its formula
2: so is the honey go- ed- the honey's going in before distillation
1: uh, post distillation oh, wow. oh I, wow i think so it's, a just, little, it's a little sweet yeah, I think they're not redistilling, but I could be okay. incorrectly like wow, there. that's it, really that's really a cool concept though. Yeah.
2: Wow. How how how, how hip hip and local. <laughs> exactly. Art, artisanal, are so craft. And so fucking craft. <laughs> so, um I think we're good on gin. Any, anybody more to say on gin? I'd love for you to give an I I I uh this is getting nerdy here, but I I really um, you know, value your contribution regarding ice to the the cocktail movement, I think that, um, I'd like to just sort of hear the timeline on that. And, uh, what, first of all, why you picked it, how you picked it, and, and then sort of the sequential outcome. And I, the outcome is guys like, you know, bars, like our places are using clear ice and have these really cool ice programs and guys on the forums are talking about how to make clear ice for their whiskeys and things like that. But you had a lot to do with sort of making this whole thing happen.
1: Yeah, I guess I did. A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> so um uh, many years ago I went to a seminar at a cocktail convention, Tales of the Cocktail in New Orleans, and it was about how uh a bar did their ice program. And uh I believe the, the theory at the time was you boil the water, you freeze it, you let it melt, and then you refreeze it. And that was supposed to make super clear ice. And I just didn't think it made good science sense. Sure. Uh so I decided to Take all the hearsay uh, and test it methodically, and and see what happened, and then uh, see what might have worked. And I didn't think that I was gonna fix ice <laughs> for the world, but I kind of I, I got lucky there, I guess, or smart, or something. But I so I would test, say, boiling the water. That's always been the the rumor for uh, many years. Still, if you search on Google how to make clear ice, the first thing that comes up in the Google recommended answer. Is boiling the water, mm-hmm. which is false. Totally. And, um, what do you mean, like 24 water. hours? It's distilled water. That's how you make clear ice, right? <laughs> that, uh, that is I'm also not how you <laughs> make uh, clear ice. Yeah. And, uh, so I would test and I would say, boil the water, make ice, and then let that water melt and boil it again and, uh, make more ice and then take a picture every time to show its cloudiness and whether it was becoming more clear over time. And it was not. And then I would try adding water in very thin layers uh to see if that would uh decrease the cloudiness of ice. And I just got really cool-looking layered ice. <laughs> it was like striped ice, yeah. like fruit gum of ice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but n- not super practical to make. It takes like a month. And uh tried all sorts of uh, different things, eventually realizing that the shape of the container made a difference, that uh, the obvious realization that ice is cloudy on the inside of the cube not so much the outside. That's usually quite clear. And that's because the way the water is freezing is from the cold part, the outside, to the least cold part, which would be the inside of the cube, therefore pushing any trapped air and impurities towards the center of the cube. And, uh, there was no way to, to get around that because that's the way, you know, with cold air surrounding an ice cube, that's the way it works. And, uh, uh, it hit me that I could we could just control the direction that the water froze, and if it only froze from one side, it would push all the trapped air and impurities away. So I started using a, a hard-sided picnic cooler with the top off, filled it with water, not even distilled or boiled or, or anything water, and let it freeze. And that's, that's the method that works with no mechanics, no machine uh, at home. It's just to Put a stick of cooler in the freezer. Yeah,
2: and that's basically the the science behind how the Klein Bell machine works. And the, if you if people at home don't know what a Klein Bell is, but um, <clears throat> Klein Bell is basically the industrial ice machine that makes the ice blocks, the perfectly clear ice blocks that ice sculptors use in their various ice sculpting endeavors. Um, that's that's who we buy our ice from now for the the various bars and restaurants. Um, but it's the same thing. It basically is uh, a freezer. And it freezes kind of from the bottom and a little bit from the sides. And, and they kind of, they kind of what do they do? They vacuum off kind of the slurry? They, no,
1: they circulate the water oh, on top with the water, just yeah. a, an aquarium pump. Right. Just keeps it from a, a, a crust of uh, ice float uh, on the top, which right. would cause it to freeze from the top down as well. So it just it's just breaking up the ice on the surface. Right.
2: Okay. Okay. Right. Yeah. And so then it's only
1: from the bottom to the top.
2: Yeah. And then they pull it out and they basically, there is like one cl- kind of, kind of cloudy edge on it and then they take that and they saw it off and what you end up with is a 10 by 20 by 40 clear block of 300 pounds of craft ice yeah I made I made a super I was telling you last night I made a, this super ghetto version of like a klein Bell before I really understood what a Klein Bell was but after reading his blog post when I was working at the motorcycle shop I made this really rigged system in a freezer uh we had a um, just a home freezer in our our motorcycle shop and I made this horrible contraption but it ended up getting uh, antifreeze all over all of the ice, so it was a little bit anticlimactic. <laughs> yeah, cool. Well, thanks for that.
1: Sure. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, about seven years ago now, and and now you hold the
2: patent on clear ice. Right? <laughs>
1: now, uh now you can see a million YouTube videos that uh, that don't mention where they learned this information. <laughs> right.
2: Every every time somebody orders a clear ice cube, you get a quarter of it.
1: Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. That's how I'm fabulously wealthy okay. in my ice money. And keep it in a frozen bank.
0: Uh-huh, uh-huh.
1: So let, let's uh,
0: let's talk about the book for a second. So you um, tonic water, aka oh. GNT WTF. Uh, so what was the inspiration? I, I mean, aside from gin and tonic, like why why gin and tonic?
1: Well, uh, really, it came together. Uh, several years ago, I was writing a more of a trend story on the new Spanish style gin and tonics that were hot in Spain and catching fire across the world. And, uh, I went to look up the date that the gin and tonic was created or the first reference to it. And, you know, three years later, I'm still researching. So that was the, the start of a long and probably never ending research pro- project, largely focused on the history of malaria. Because uh, for those people who don't know, tonic water is quinine-flavored soda. Quinine is derived from cinchona tree bark. And cinchona tree bark uh, is, by luckily coincidence, something that uh, somewhat prevents and relieves malaria and has for since 1630-ish. Wow, I did not know that. Yep, it was... a. Uh, A great coincidental discovery in that in early medicine and the understandings of it, uh, they thought the symptom was the disease. So you're suffering from a headache, whether that's brain cancer or a hangover. But what they found was uh, Jesuit missionaries in Peru uh, found a local cure for headaches, basically, and there probably wasn't any malaria in the Western Hemisphere yet. So they didn't have malaria in Peru. But because they were Jesuit missionaries, they knew of the great fever and ache disease back in Rome, where uh, there was tons of malaria. So they sent some back and like, here, try this. You know, you have you have headaches too. Turns out that was the cure for malaria and, and literally changed uh, global history.
2: Wow, that's amazing.
1: And it was all because they were like, eh, it's like uh, figuring out that Alka-Seltzer cures a brain tumor. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're right. It, does it? Uh, Not as far as I know, okay. but, uh, so that was, the yeah, that's the the early history of, of the tonic water. And, uh, then I sort of traced that as it went along up to when the gin and tonic came together, which was most likely in India, which is a little unique because, you know, gin essentially comes from England now by the mid 1800s. And the quinine was controlled by the Dutch, uh, uh, but grown on plantations in Indonesia, hmm. um, but yet in India is where someone's like, "Hey, you know what would be great together? <laughs> this gin and no uh, this tonic water." Hmm. Uh, which the tonic water, as far as I can tell so far, was produced and exported from England to India, which was ruled by the British at the time. Malaria was a huge problem, and uh, it wasn't. An outright cure. They used quinine for a lot of a lot of things, um and it was more like um you know the smart water of its day. And uh, uh, but, I love smart water, but that's how it came together. The earliest reference I found to uh, gin and tonic being consumed as an enjoyable beverage was some some chap at a horse race, and like we had a fiver on Polly; she did not come through. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's amazing. That's like how uh, <clears throat> the uh, the gimlet was. Uh, Probably created on 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 boats that had rations of uh, of gin, and they also had rations of uh, roses lime juice to fight off scurvy. Right, those are the two things that they needed to have: their gin and their scurvy cure. And so they added them together and they created the the gimlet. In theory, I don't know. I don't know if that's true.
1: Mm-hmm. I think it is though. Yeah, I mean they they needed the preserved lime juice, right? To and they also had rations of navy strength rum.
3: So
2: they're like put these together
3: delicious it's medicine it's
2: medicine it and it fucks
0: you up
3: yeah. <laughs> i'm curious what uh given that the gin and tonic was sort of uh, uh created in india so your initial research give me an idea of what the spanish what was the
1: hot spanish take on the gin and tonic well that's uh that's a, a modern trend and it's it's uh to the it's more of a format just putting a gin and tonic in a great big red wine goblet uh glass and uh putting your gin and tonic in there and then garnishing it, sort of like bartenders have that competition to put the most garnish in a Bloody Mary. Uh, this is The Spanish have that doing with the gin and tonic. Well will have a flamed uh, cinnamon stick and grapefruit and swirls of different herbs uh, in the glass. And uh, they might do a different combination for every gin and tonic combination in the bar, things like that. But uh, I think that The real explanation for why that trend happened was because the ice machines in Spain are these great big long cylinders that are hollow. They don't really fit practically in most glasses. So you'd be served in like the 90s uh, a gin and tonic in Spain, a small glass, only two cubes would only partially fit in it, and uh, they'd pour the gin in and give you a bottle of tonic. So your glass is three quarters full of gin. And there's room for like one splash of tonic. And so it's, it's bad. And then you keep mixing as you're drinking and eventually get to a good gin tonic for about one sip. And mm. then it's too much tonic for yeah, the rest yeah. of the drink. Mm. So finally, some genius got the idea, like, let's put this in a bigger glass that holds the ice cubes. Uh, I, I've heard that they went through the Bosque Cider glass first because mm. that's a, uh, you know, taller anyway, but the red wine goblet can actually hold those cubes, enough of them to put a full bottle of the tonic in. Interesting. I think my that's my theory as to why the gin and tonic is like a, a global trend is because the wrong ice.
2: Yeah, I like it. And so now it's almost like they're using uh, different uh, – so like Dulce and Royal Oak has got a half a dozen different tonic waters they make for better or worse. So I think that now there seems to be a thing that a lot of people are making their own tonic waters, various like flavored tonic waters – Whatever, I'm I'm a little uh I'm a little iffy on those.
1: Yeah, it's uh it's definitely a thing a lot of bartenders are doing. Um, there are some safety issues there. Uh, if we look back in the early days of tonic water, people like the great Charles H. Baker, um, uh, who wrote about drinks around the world, would warn against having more than three gin and tonics in a sitting because you're going to have this terrible headache, which is cinchonitis, an overdose of cinchona. No kidding. And so. Cinchonitis is back, America, because uh, bartenders are making their own tonic water. And uh, if, if you're testing a lot of recipes and using a lot of it, probably one glass that someone serves to you of a homemade gin and tonic is probably not going to push you over the limit. But if you're someone who drinks a lot of it or works with it, uh, we just don't know how much cinchona, um, is,
2: is really going into it.
1: Yeah. Right. Fortunately, Americans are
3: known for their moderation. So. Yeah.
2: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I, you know, I actually have a uh, first printing of *A uh, Gentleman's Companion* oh, nice. that my bartenders bought me after we opened Sugar House. <laughs> it's my prize. My prize book.
1: terrific drinking book great book
2: super bad drinks like 90% of the drinks are like holy shit that's disgusting yeah there's
1: a bar in San Francisco did the whole menu based on Charles H Baker drink but they had to change them all
2: yes (laughs) 99% of them are just fucking horrible it's like oh yeah but anyway Hmm. yeah good uh, good fun history
0: so there's this idea that um, (laughs) as you research you, you learn more and more about less and less Right, and so uh, what was the book is distilled down to no no pun intended the uh, eighty pages roughly mm-hmm. give or take. Um, is there a lot more like what what's left, and is there is there a longer uh, kind of like uh, uh
1: tome that's to, to follow? Yeah, well, I certainly hope so. I for this book, I started I wanted to get a book out uh, while the gin and tonic thing is sort of hot and as well as I've been researching this for so long it was time to just put something out and I don't think there's a huge amount of mass market pressure for a drinking book on malaria but um <laughs> but it's just cuz people are wrong uh, it's there are amazing stories in the history of uh, malaria and so I started with a long document and cut out a lot in order to get the book that I published and um just to sort of have the awesome cliff notes version of uh, the research that I've been doing. And so the long version would have, you know, the original source material and uh, quotes from the time. So there was really cool uh, vintage advertisements for all sorts of products with quinine in it that aren't around today, like quinine cod liver oil and effervescent quinine pills, sort of like Alka-Seltzer would be that you would just like instant gin and tonic. Just throw it in a glass of gin. Sounds Fantastic. good to me. Yeah, I, I, I so bring it back. That's your product, right? Yeah, there. Yeah, that's my next thing to do. There you go. Yeah, in my spare time. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I I do hope that this will eventually take the form of a much uh, larger book in the future. Hmm. Uh, I think that people don't know how fascinating the story is, and maybe this is like the the teaser, the the movie preview. Sure. And you <laughs> self publish this. I did. I self-published cool. it. Right now, I'm just selling the hard copies on and, uh but there's a Kindle version on Amazon. Fantastic. What was
3: that process like? Pretty easy to get up and going?
1: Um, it was super easy to get the online book, yeah. Like, just Microsoft Word right. and uh, then check that the line breaks went in the right place. I was uh, really impressed. It made me want think that maybe I should do other things or, you know, take all the ice research and put it in one place rather than, you know, here are the 30 posts you need to read to understand my process. <laughs> Just to have a, uh, one. I,
2: online I think that's a great idea. I would reread that book entirely.
1: Yeah. Well, I got homework. There you go. There it is.
2: Um, cool. Well, I want to, I want to thank you for coming out. I think it's really, uh, as we continue to grow as a, as a food city, I'm not going to say foodie city, but as a, as a culinary city and, um i think it's important to get guys like you out to see with a with a national and international perspective um out into detroit to see what we're doing and see that we're taking it seriously and really uh working hard to um compete with some of the you know the 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 serious programs around the around the world you know like i said we were talking about nightjar last night which is a phenomenal bar in london but uh we're the detroit version of bad lucks the detroit version of nightjar so don't get your hopes up too high but uh Hopefully you enjoyed that experience.
1: Oh uh, yeah, it's been a, a great visit so far and it's only been the first day. So That's right. Lots for more,
2: more drinking. Many more places to go. <laughs> celebration. Yeah, celebration indeed. You know. Indeed. Yeah. Tonight should be a fun event. You're gonna come to Sugar House and talk about the book, do a little book signing, little cocktail reception. Should be great. I'm yep. excited.
1: Yeah, give me a microphone and I'll just keep talking. That's great. You're gonna That's have to great. yank it out eventually.
2: You're
0: gonna be in good company. Everybody wants to hear this shit, so <laughs> All right. Thanks, Camper, for being with us. Uh Next time around, we'll be with Chef Ryan from in the finals of Hell's Kitchen. Thanks for listening, guys. Thank you very much. It's a celebration. Ooh. Thank
1: you.